men of God, or as the ancient Hebrews would say, Ishim Elohim, greetings to you. I am glad to be here at Amen. Last week, I believe you heard from George, Psalm 84. Let me just say a word about that. These two psalms are, while not right next to each other in the scripture, they are similar themes. Uh, remembering it some from the metrical version, as I talk about Zion and uh, this theme in Psalm 87 is the glory of Zion, where the people of God meet, where God dwells, that place of special revelation and activity. Psalm 84, and as again I'm quoting from the metrical version, says, advancing still from strength to strength, we go where other pilgrims trod, to each to Zion comes at length and stands before the face of God. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is he who places all his trust in thee. For God the Lord is a shield and a sun. The Lord will grace and glory give. No good will he withhold from one who does uprightly walk and live. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is he who places all his trust in thee. That's his part of Psalm 84. Psalm 87 is speaking of the glory of Zion. And let me give you a bit of a theological triptych. If you ever went to AAA, you know what a triptych is? Uh, in the end days, at which I'm 80, aging myself and having been born like a great number of you in the last millennium, uh, you might go to AAA and they'd plot out where you were going, with where you want to stay, et cetera, et cetera, and they give it all to you and it was called your triptych. And you could look, as I like to do as a kid, well, we're going to go here, and then we're going to stop at this place, and then we're going to see this, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the trip tick for our lesson this morning is we are studying the providence of God in establishing Zion, used in many different forms in the Old Testament, talking about the land of Israel, that whole nation, specifically talking about Jerusalem, more specifically talking about the places of redemption or salvation history by the Lord Jesus that began with Abraham on Mount Moriah. And so sometimes people want to wait to the end and then give you the aha. Well, Mount Moriah, where Abraham starts his uh, ministry, where God interacts with him, becomes the place of redemption for Jesus Christ. Now, in a Sunday school lesson years and years ago, I was trying to make the point uh, of this and making the connection. And, you know, sometimes you want to lead up to it and give the aha moment. And so I'm telling, you know, here's Abraham thinking that he's going to have to sacrifice his son, walking through what we're going to walk through this morning. And then I was making the point, hoping that everybody would say, ah, oh, I never knew that, that Jerusalem becomes the culmination of this. And so I said with some fervor, this is what happens at Mount Moriah. And then 
what does Mount Moriah become? And immediately someone said, Mendenhall. <laughs> it, it was one of the greatest things. It was no pause at all. And the person who did it, uh, Steve McHugh, if any of you know him, still reminds me 10 years later, you remember that time I did that Mendenhall thing on you? I thought, Only people in Memphis would appreciate it. That, unfortunately, was the end of my lesson for the day because everybody was laughing. Lon Magnus may remember that. Yeah, so Mount Moriah doesn't end up in the scripture in Mendenhall. It ends up in Jerusalem. This morning, hear the word of God from Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Or as some versions say, all my fountains, all thy fountains are there. Well, we each got to pick which psalm we'd speak about, and I was delighted to uh, be at the end and uh, to pick this psalm because it's a good way to end a season of psalm studying. Say that fast four times. Uh, one commentary, speaking of this psalm, said it had a number of characteristics that make it one of the most problematic in the whole Psalter. Now, the person wasn't talking about its authority, not questioning its inspiration, but was saying it's hard to know what is this psalmist saying? What's the background? Sometimes you'll get a notion of what the historical uh, background of a psalm is, and that will really help us to know more about what the message is for today. There isn't a historical context given, but it may have been like a number of psalms, ones that the pilgrims sang when they went to uh, Jerusalem for the several-year feasts. You can imagine Psalm 84 being that. Advancing still from strength to strength, we go where other pilgrims have trod, till each to Zion comes at length. You can imagine people coming from the parts of Israel and going up to Jerusalem to sing that. You might imagine uh, this being an example as well. When that commentator spoke of the characteristics of this psalm being problematic, what he meant was it's short, it has seemingly unconnected thoughts, and it has an absence of some of the structure that other psalms have. As I said, we sometimes have that difficulty in trying to fit it in. Like, What was the original context in which the people of Israel sang this psalm? We know they were all used in worship, uh, particularly uh, synagogue and then temple worship, but also in private devotion as well. Let's look a bit at what the scripture version at least refers to in this where the place is, uh, and you'll notice uh, 
the reference to Genesis 22, 1 and 2. I'll read it. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then we look at uh, 2 Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And he began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. It seems that the earliest inhabitants of what we now know as Jerusalem were Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe that's referred to in Joshua 11.3 and 12.10. You can look at that at another time. They were inhabitants of the land. They were driven out with the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and, uh, and many others. And here Solomon builds the temple, approximately 1,000 uh, B.C., probably around 960 exactly, on this land that David buys. Now, the background, you may remember, is that David, full of the Holy Spirit and wanting to glorify God, promises God or intends to build this great place of worship. The Lord says, you've been a man of blood. You will not build that place. David buys the land, and Solomon, his son, has the opportunity to build it. You're aware from Psalm 110 and from the encounter with uh, Abram in the Old Testament that he meets this shadowy figure called Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes and goes on the pages of the Old Testament, shows up in Psalm uh, 110 as well, interestingly enough. But we know that Melchizedek is who? He's the king of Salem, uh, an early king of Jerusalem. And... Um, I won't say more about that, but there's a great history that's worth your studying as well. What emerges in this story that's recorded in the early part of the Old Testament with Abraham is God is establishing Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, Zion, all about the same place as a place of promise, place of sacrifice, and worship and celebration. As I said, Zion is used in the Old Testament sometimes just for the notion that we're going to meet God in Zion, meaning we're going to meet God where he lives, where we know we're going to go into his presence. It's also referred to just as the nation of Israel, uh, as well as that specific mountain that's located just to the south of Mount Moriah on the Temple Mount. So there's, uh, think of this area... <coughs> We're talking about Mount Moriah and Mount Zion and Jerusalem as being similar to going to another place in the United States. <clears throat> Someone says, where are you from? Now, you won't say, well, the Bluffs or Germantown or the Pinch or Berclair or South Memphis or 
East Memphis or Mendenhall, you might just say, well, I'm from Memphis. Yeah, they know where you are. You said, well, I'm from the Bluffs. You say, the Bluffs are where? But when we speak of it, we can be precise in saying, well, I uh, live near Laurelwood. Ah, okay, you can pinpoint it. Well, what you're hearing is these different designations for an area that's all geographically very contiguous. And it wouldn't be different than if you lived in a certain neighborhood, you might say, well, I live at the end of such and such a street or something. All saying the same thing, but just being very precise. It's a bit difficult, unless you're thinking about that, when you talk about this psalm, or oftentimes the re reference to Mount Moriah or Mount Zion, they're all there together in a very small, compact area that's much smaller than the area from the river even out to uh, East Memphis, even smaller than that. But for people who are living in that small area, they can refer to it with this geographic precision almost as saying, well, at Second Presbyterian or at Christ Methodist, and people would know oh, exactly where they were talking. This happened at this point. This happened at that point. And this is what's going on in this psalm. So indeed, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Jerusalem are all these separate small hills. And they're all referring to God's working in Joshua's conquest, in the interaction with Abraham, the purchase by David of the Temple Mount, to the place where the pilgrims went up, <clears throat> excuse me, for the feast, to the construction of Solomon's Temple, where sacrifices were offered. This is the holy mountain. This is the central drama place of our faith. As you see, all this is going on, establishing God's covenant, God's provision, God's establishing of a temple where sacrifice is, the very place in that same region where the Lord Jesus goes out to give himself. <clears throat> also, that place where at the resurrection of Jesus, at the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, what great thing happens in the temple? Well, we know that the, the big curtain that separated the people from the high priest who went in only once a year is rent, and it's symbolizing that Jesus now has provided access for his people in every age. That great drama happening as recorded in the New Testament takes place in this same place, in Zion. It represents also, in this psalm, the conquering and the submission of the foes of Israel and the Messiah. When I first looked at this psalm decades ago, I thought, now why is it mentioning Rahab? I thought, what does she have to do with it? <clears throat> I wasn't understanding that it was talking about those people. Uh, and oftentimes, Egypt is referred to as Rahab. So this is not the lady. This is uh, that uh, area that's referred to in Isaiah 30, uh, verse 7, a number of references to Egypt, and it's referred to as Rahab. But note that none of the places, Babylon, Philistia, Cush, Tyre, are places that are spoken of in any good way uh, in the scripture. 
And so when you look here in the psalmist says in verse 4, among those who know me, this is God speaking to us, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there. What is that saying to us? Jerusalem, Zion, the place where God dwells, has people living there who claim citizenship there, who were enemies of God, who were oppressors of God's people. It's giving us a notion that the place where God is includes peoples of backgrounds that were very foreign to the people of Israel. You can imagine uh, an Israelite looking at this and saying, why are we singing about these people that have been our enemies? Those Philistines are referred to as dogs, one of the worst expressions you could have. They're referred to as unclean people. We know about the constant problem with the Philistines. Babylon, Philistia, Cush, way down there in Ethiopia. Who, who are those people? Those are all foreigners. They don't have anything to do with us, the people of the covenant promise. They're symbols. They're also actual people. They're encompassing people from every background. If they had known about it, they could have said, from the United States, from China. From South America, they wouldn't have known any of those places, but it's talking about how the gospel, this good news of God saying, I'm going to save a people, is going to touch people in even the most odd, out-of-the-way, unknown, rebellious, nasty, hateful, pagan lands. They're all going to say, I have my citizenship in Jerusalem. Not talking about a passport with physical citizenship, but saying my spiritual heritage is in the God of Israel, the one who dwells on Mount Zion. Well, it's a great picture of what is to come, because as we know from Zechariah in his prophecy in chapter 8, that there's going to be a time when Zion will be spoken of in this way. Hear the word of God from Zechariah 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. In the streets of the city, shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, 
I will save my people from the east country, from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Isn't that interesting that God in calling the father of the covenant, Abraham, in conquering people under Joshua's time and buying this land under David and building there under Solomon, says, I'm going to bring people whom you could not have imagined. And what he promised to Abraham is that they were going to be of such great number They were greater than the stars in the heavens, the sand on the seashore. And they're going to come from everywhere. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? And of course we know it can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit who is saying, I want you and 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 all of the many thousands and millions over history with a particular notion, I want you from this nation, and I want you and you and all the thousands from your nation and from your nation and from your tribe and culture, it points us to Revelation 7, doesn't it? After this, I looked and behold, verse 9 in Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, that gives the energy to that great missionary task of evangelism, doesn't it? around the corner in Memphis, to every part of Shelby County, throughout the state, throughout the nation, throughout every nation. What the psalmist is speaking of here when he says, on that holy mountain, glorious things you are spoken. What I just mentioned is the glory of the great God, isn't it? That God himself will do it. And while all these people are not physically going to try to live in Jerusalem. There aren't going to be hundreds of millions of people from every age who are going to come and say, well, where's your apartment at in Jerusalem? We all are going to say, as the people of God, glorious things of you are spoken. Zion, city of our God. Some of you are thinking of that great hymn, aren't you? Glorious things are spoken of our God. Zion is used as a way of expressing the character, the person, and the nature of God and what he's accomplished through Jesus Christ. And these are ones who are going to say from all these nations, I have my identity in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I have my identity, my heritage in the one who established himself in that little bit of land in the Near East, but has established a kingdom that is to encompass the whole world. And so what we look for 
is not just the return of Jesus in triumph to rule over a little nation, but one who will return in triumph and will rule over every nation, every people, from every culture, in every background. And of Zion, it shall be said, in verse 5, this one and that one were born in her. These people from all these languages and background have their understanding of who they are. Their register, their birth certificate says, son of God, daughter of God. And that will be our identity for eternity. It will not be in the future, well, I'm a Pakistani, or I'm an Edomite, or I'm a Sydneyan, or I'm an Egyptian, or I'm an American, or I'm a British. A Britisher? Yes, I guess I could say that. But I am a son or a daughter of the Most High. I have my identity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who did his life and ministry there at Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, in Zion. There'll be great joy, and it ends by saying, the sea singers and dancers will say, all my springs, all my fountains, all of my lifeblood, all of my identity, everything that we all need, water, it's basic sustenance of life. This is given in an agrarian economy. My springs, my background, who I am, my identity is wrapped up in Zion. We say it in the completion of the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God. My identity is with the people of God. We talk in theology about union with Christ. That's what makes us brothers, isn't it? That's what unites the men of God, the women of God, in every age. We often say, so where are you from? And Memphis, of course, that is needing the next question, where'd you go to school? When I first came here, I heard that a few times, and someone not knowing that I'd come here said, so where'd you go to school? I know they were trying to figure out MUS or East. I said, Fort City High. And they all looked at me like, yeah, you're definitely not from here. You don't know what the answer to the question is. Well, if we're asked in future days, where are you from? Well, what we're really thinking of is, where are we going, isn't it? And as one brother said this morning, recording that hymn that we've sung in different versions, we're marching. We're marching up to Zion. It's the beautiful city of God. I can remember singing that in the choir as a young kid. And the sopranos would sing, we're marching, we're marching up to Zion. And then the baritones would say, it's the beautiful city of God. And the basses would say, oh, yeah. And the, and the sopranos would go back again, we're marching, we're marching up to Zion. And the basses would say the same thing. Typical, not exciting bass part, oh, yeah. Well, we're all marching to Zion. And we, by the grace of Jesus, 
will each get there and marvel that we have been called not only from every physical nature, nation and culture, etc., but we've been called from every sort of awful, rotten, sin-scarred, broken background, and we have been made whole in Jesus Christ. That is what he has done in completion, and that's what he's doing in us actually, as he's putting us back together, mending us tenderly, making us into his choice possession, and someday we shall all meet in the new heavens, in the new earth, and say, we have joined together at Zion in the presence of Jesus Christ, beholding the beatific vision of the resurrected Son of God. And that vision and the worship and awe that it inspires, brothers, will cause us to want to join with that angelic host of seraphim and cherubim who never stop in their excitement and pleasure and satisfaction from saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You may be confused about some nature of what Zion is or what it's going to look like, but you know what you're going to be, complete, satisfied, and full of awe and worship as you see the king seated in Zion forever. And that's where we're going to end the summer, and that's where we're going for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that by your grace we are marching to Zion. You have blazed the way to that eternal city of which you are the founder and the architect. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have set a deep, unmovable anchor that we see in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews is that anchor of our faith in you as the great God who has ascended to heaven from Zion and will return to the same place to establish your reign forever. Grant us strength that in our march, when we stumble, when we trip, when we want to retreat and do retreat, that you shall call us anew each day to keep on marching with the confidence that we shall see you face to face. We rejoice that we are advancing from strength to strength, we go where those other pilgrims have trod, and we too shall come at length to Zion before the throne of God. Amen.